Question 189, Part 2 of Summa Theologica Secunda Secunde, Treatise on the States of Life. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Summa Theologica Secunda Secunde, Treatise on the States of Life, by St. Thomas Aquinas. Translated by the Fathers of the English Dominican Province. Question 189. Of the Entrance into Religious Life. In Ten Articles. Part 2. Articles 6 through 10. Sixth Article. Whether one ought to be withdrawn from entering religion through deference to one's parents. Objection 1 it would seem that one ought to be withdrawn from entering religion through deference to one's parents. For it is not lawful to admit that which is of obligation in order to do that which is optional. Now deference to one's parents comes under an obligation of the precept concerning the honoring of our parents. In Exodus 20, verse 12. Wherefore the Apostle says in 1 Timothy 5.4, If any widow have children or grandchildren, let her learn first to govern her own house and to make a return of duty to her parents. But the entrance to religion is optional. Therefore, it would seem that one ought not to admit deference to one's parents for the sake of entering religion. Objection to Further, seemingly the subjection of a son to his father is greater than that of a slave to his master, since sonship is natural, while slavery results from the curse of sin, as appears from Genesis 9.25. Now a slave cannot set aside the service of his master in order to enter religion or take holy orders, as stated in the Decretals in the chapter si servus much less therefore can a son set aside the deference due to his father in order to enter religion objection three further a man is more indebted to his parents than to those to whom he owes money now persons who owe money to anyone cannot enter religion for Gregory says in the Register of Letters, 8.5, that those who are engaged in trade must by no means be admitted into a monastery when they seek admittance, unless first of all they withdraw from public business, as stated in the canon Legem. Therefore, seemingly much less may children enter religion in despite of their duty to their parents. On the contrary, it is related in Matthew 4.22 that James and John left their nets and father and followed our Lord. By this, says Hilary, in Canon 3 on the Gospel of Matthew, we learn that we who intend to follow Christ are not bound by the cares of the secular life and by the ties of home. I answer that, as stated above in question 101, article 2, second reply, when we were treating of piety, 
parents as such have the character of a principle wherefore it is competent to them as such to have the care of their children hence it is unlawful for a person having children to enter religion so as altogether to set aside the care for their children namely without providing for their education for it is written in first timothy five eight that if any man have not care of his own he hath denied the faith and is worse than an infidel nevertheless it is accidentally competent to parents to be assisted by their children in so far to wit as they are placed in a condition of necessity consequently we must say that when their parents are in such need that they cannot fittingly be supported otherwise than by the help of their children these latter may not lawfully enter religion in despite of their duty to their parents if however the parents necessity be not such as to stand in great need of their children's assistance the latter may in despite of the duty they owe their parents enter religion even against their parents command because after the age of puberty every free man enjoys freedom in things concerning the ordering of his state of life especially in such as belong to the service of god and we should more obey the father of spirits that we may live as says the apostle in hebrews twelve nine then obey our parents hence as we read in matthew eight twenty two luke nine sixty two our lord rebuked the disciple who was unwilling to follow him forthwith on account of his father's burial for there were others who could see to this as chrysostom remarks in his homily twenty seven on the gospel of matthew reply to objection one the commandment of honoring our parents extends not only to bodily but also to spiritual service and to the paying of deference hence even those who are in religion can fulfill the commandment of honoring their parents by praying for them and by revering and assisting them as becomes religious since even those who live in the world honor their parents in different ways as befits their condition reply to objection to since slavery was imposed in punishment of sin it follows that by slavery man forfeits something which otherwise he would be competent to have namely the free disposal of his person for a slave belongs wholly to his master according to aristotle in politics one two on the other hand the son through being subject to his father is not hindered from freely disposing of his person by transferring himself to the service of god which is most conducive to man's good reply to objection three he who is under a certain fixed obligation cannot lawfully set it aside so long as he is able to fulfill it wherefore if a person is under an obligation to give an account to someone or to pay a certain fixed debt he cannot lawfully evade this obligation in order to enter religion if however he owes a sum of money 
and has not wherewithal to pay the debt, he must do what he can, namely by surrendering his goods to his creditor. According to civil law, money lays an obligation not on the person of a freeman, but on his property, because the person of a freeman is above all pecuniary consideration. Hence, after surrendering his property, he may lawfully enter religion, nor is he bound to remain in the world in order to earn the means of paying the debt. On the other hand, he does not owe his father a special debt, except as may arise in a case of necessity, as stated above. Seventh article. Whether parish priests may lawfully enter religion. Objection 1. It would seem that parish priests cannot lawfully enter religion. For Gregory says in the Pastoral Rule 3.4 that he who undertakes the cure of souls receives an awful warning in the words, My son, if thou be surety for thy friend, thou hast engaged fast thy hand to a stranger. According to Proverbs 6.1. And he goes on to say, because to be surety for a friend is to take charge of the soul of another on the surety of one's own behavior. Now he who is under an obligation to a man for a debt cannot enter religion unless he pay what he owes if he can. Since then, a priest is able to fulfill the cure of souls to which obligation he has pledged his soul it would seem unlawful for him to lay aside the cure of souls in order to enter religion. Objection to. Further, what is lawful to one is likewise lawful to all. But if all priests, having cure of souls, were to enter religion, the people would be left without a pastor's care, which would be unfitting. Therefore, it seems that parish priests cannot lawfully enter religion. Objection 3. Further, chief among the acts to which religious orders are directed are those whereby a man gives to others the fruit of his contemplation. Now such acts are competent to parish priests and archdeacons, whom it becomes by virtue of their office to preach and hear confessions. Therefore, it would seem unlawful for a parish priest or archdeacon to pass over to religion. On the contrary, it is said in the Decretals, in the chapter Duce Sunt Leges, If a man, while governing the people in his church under the bishop, and leading a secular life, is inspired by the Holy Ghost to desire to work out his salvation in a monastery, or under some canonical rule, even though his bishop withstand him, we authorize him to go freely. I answer that, as stated above, in Article 3, Third Reply, as well as in Question 88, Article 12, First Reply, the obligation of a perpetual vow stands before every other obligation. Now it belongs properly to bishops and religious, to be bound by perpetual vow to devote themselves to the divine service. Confer Q. 
Question 184, Article 5. While parish priests and archdeacons are not, as bishops are, bound by a perpetual and solemn vow to retain the cure of souls. Wherefore bishops cannot lay aside their bishopric for any pretext whatever without the authority of the Roman pontiff, according to the canon Lichet in the Decretal Extra. Whereas archdeacons and parish priests are free to renounce in the hands of the bishop the cure entrusted to them, without the Pope's special permission, who alone can dispense from perpetual vows. Therefore, it is evident that archdeacons and parish priests may lawfully enter religion. Reply to Objection 1. Parish priests and archdeacons have bound themselves to the care of their subjects as long as they retain their archdeaconry or parish, but they did not bind themselves to retain their archdeaconry or parish forever. Reply to Objection 2. As Jerome says in his letter against Vigilantius, Although they, namely religious, are sorely smitten by thy poisonous tongue, about whom you argue, saying, If all shut themselves up and live in solitude, who will go to church? Who will convert worldlings? Who will be able to urge sinners to virtue? If this holds true, if all are fools with thee, who can be wise? Nor will virginity be commendable, for if all be virgins, and none marry, the human race will perish. Virtue is rare, and is not desired by many. It is therefore evident that this is a foolish alarm. Thus might a man fear to draw water lest the river run dry. Translator's Note St. Thomas gives no reply to the third objection, which is sufficiently solved in the body of the article. Eighth article. Whether it is lawful to pass from one religious order to another. Objection 1. It seems unlawful to pass from one religious order to another, even a stricter one. For the Apostle says in Hebrews 10.25, not forsaking our assembly, as some are accustomed. And a gloss observes, those namely who yield through fear of persecution, or who presuming on themselves withdraw from the company of sinners or of the imperfect, that they may appear to be righteous. Now those who pass from one religious order to another more perfect one would seem to do this. Therefore, this is seemingly unlawful. Objection to. Further, the profession of monks is stricter than that of canons regular, but it is unlawful for anyone to pass from the state of canon regular to the monastic state. For it is said in the Decretals, in the canon Mandamus, We ordain, and without any exception, forbid any professed canon regular to become a monk, unless, which God forbid, he have fallen into public sin. Therefore, it would seem unlawful for anyone to pass from one religious order 
to another of higher rank. Objection 3. Further, a person is bound to fulfill what he has vowed, as long as he is able lawfully to do so. Thus, if a man has vowed to observe continence, he is bound, even after contracting marriage by words in the present tense, to fulfill his vow so long as the marriage is not consummated, because he can fulfill the vow by entering religion. Therefore, if a person may lawfully pass from one religious order to another, he will be bound to do so if he vowed it previously while in the world. But this would seem objectionable, since in many cases it might give rise to scandal. Therefore, a religious may not pass from one religious order to a stricter one. On the contrary, it is said in the Decretals, in the canon Virgines, If sacred virgins design for the good of their soul to pass to another monastery on account of a stricter life, and decide to remain there, the Holy Synod allows them to do so. And the same would seem to apply to any religious. Therefore, one may lawfully pass from one religious order to another. I answer that, it is not commendable to pass from one religious order to another, both because this frequently gives scandal to those who remain, and because, other things being equal, it is easier to make progress in a religious order to which one is accustomed than in one to which one is not habituated. Hence, in the Conferences of the Fathers, in Collection 14.5, Abbot Nestoros says, It is best for each one that he should, according to the resolve he has made, hasten with the greatest zeal and care to reach the perfection of the work he has undertaken, and nowise forsake the profession he has chosen. And further on he adds, in chapter 6, by way of reason, for it is impossible that one and the same man should excel in all the virtues at once, since if he endeavor to practice them equally, he will of necessity, while trying to attain them all, end in acquiring none of them perfectly. Because the various religious orders excel in respect of various works of virtue. Nevertheless, one may commendably pass from one religious order to another for three reasons. First, through zeal for a more perfect religious life, which excellence depends, as stated above, in question 188, article 6, not merely on severity, but chiefly on the end to which a religious order is directed, and secondarily on the discretion whereby the observances are proportionate to the due end. Secondly, on account of a religious order falling away from the perfection it ought to have, for instance, if, in a more severe religious order, the religious begin to live less strictly, it is commendable for one to pass even to a less severe religious order if the observance is better. Hence, in the Conferences of the Fathers, Collection 19, 3, 5, and 6, Abbot John says of himself that he had passed from the solitary life in which he was professed to a less severe life 
namely of those who lived in community, because the hermetical life had fallen into decline and laxity. Thirdly, on account of sickness or weakness, the result of which sometimes is that one is unable to keep the ordinances of a more severe religious order, though able to observe those of a less strict religion. There is, however, a difference in these three cases. For in the first case, one ought, on account of humility, to seek permission. Yet this cannot be denied, provided it be certain that this other religion is more severe. And if there be a probable doubt about this, one should ask one's superior to decide, as stated in the Decretal Extra, the chapter Lichet. In like manner, the superior's decision should be sought in the second case. In the third case, it is also necessary to have a dispensation. Reply to Objection 1. Those who pass to a stricter religious order do so not out of presumption that they may appear righteous, but out of devotion, that they may become more righteous. Reply to Objection 2. Religious orders, whether of monks or of canons regular, are destined to the works of the contemplative life. Chief among these are those which are performed in the divine mysteries, and these are the direct objects of the orders of canons regular, the members of which are essentially religious clerics. On the other hand, monastic religious are not essentially clerics, according to the decretals, in the chapter Alia Causa. Hence, although monastic orders are more severe, it would be lawful, supposing the members to be lay monks, to pass from the monastic order to an order of canons regular, according to the statement of Jerome, in his letter 125 to the monk Rusticus. So live in the monastery as to deserve to become a cleric. But not conversely, as impressed in the decretal quoted above. If, however, the monks be clerics devoting themselves to the sacred ministry, they have this in common with the canons regular, coupled with greater severity, and consequently it will be lawful to pass from an order of canons regular to a monastic order, provided withal that one seek the superior's permission. Reply to Objection 3. The solemn vow whereby a person is bound to a less strict order is more binding than the simple vow whereby a person is bound to a stricter order. For if, after taking a simple vow, a person were to be married, his marriage would not be invalid, as it would be after his taking a solemn vow. Consequently, a person who is professed in a less severe order is not bound to fulfill a simple vow he has taken on entering a more severe order. Ninth Article Whether One Ought to Induce Others to Enter Religion Objection 1. It would seem that no one ought to induce others to enter religion. For the Blessed Benedict prescribes in his rule, his rule 58, that those who seek to enter religion must not easily be admitted, but spirits must be tested whether they be of God, 
and Cassian has the same instruction. Much less, therefore, is it lawful to induce anyone to enter religion. Objection 2. Further, our Lord said in Matthew 23.15, Woe to you, because you go round about the sea and the land to make one proselyte, and when he is made, you make him a child of hell twofold more than yourselves. Now, thus would seem to do those who induce persons to enter religion. Therefore, this would seem blameworthy. Objection 3. Further, no one should induce another to do what is to his prejudice. But those who are induced to enter religion sometimes take harm therefrom, for sometimes they are under obligation to enter a stricter religion. Therefore, it would not seem praiseworthy to induce others to enter religion. On the contrary, it is written in Exodus 26, verse 3 and following. Translator's note, St. Thomas quotes the sense, not the exact words. Let one curtain draw the other. Therefore, one man should draw another to God's service. I answer that, those who induce others to enter religion not only do not sin, but merit a great reward. For it is written in James 5.20, He who causeth a sinner to be converted from the error of his way shall save his soul from death and shall cover a multitude of sins. And in Daniel 12.3, They that instruct many to justice shall be as stars for all eternity. Nevertheless, such inducement may be affected by a threefold inordinateness. First, if one person force another by violence to enter religion, and this is forbidden in the Decretals, see the chapter Praesens. Secondly, if one person persuade another by simony to enter religion, by giving him presents, and this is forbidden in the Decretal, in the chapter Quam Pio. But this does not apply to the case where one provides a poor person with necessaries by educating him in the world for the religious life, or when, without any compact, one gives a person little presents for the sake of good fellowship. Thirdly, if one person entices another by lies, for it is to be feared that the person thus enticed may turn his back on finding himself deceived, and thus, the last state of that man, may become worse than the first, according to Luke 11.26. Reply to Objection 1. Those who are induced to enter religion have still a time of probation wherein they make a trial of the hardships of religion, so that they are not easily admitted to the religious life. Reply to Objection 2. According to Hilary, in Canon 24 on the Gospel of Matthew, this saying of our Lord was a forecast of the wicked endeavors of the Jews, after the preaching of Christ, to draw Gentiles or even Christians to observe the Jewish ritual, 
thereby making them doubly children of hell because to wit they were not forgiven the former sins which they committed while adherents of judaism and furthermore they incurred the guilt of jewish perfidy and thus interpreted these words have nothing to do with the case in point according to jerome however in his commentary on this passage of matthew the references to the jews even at the time when it was yet lawful to keep the legal observances in so far as he whom they converted to judaism from paganism was merely misled but when he saw the wickedness of his teachers he returned to his vomit and becoming a pagan deserved greater punishment for his treachery hence it is manifest that it is not blameworthy to draw others to the service of god or to the religious life but only when one gives a bad example to the person converted whence he becomes worse reply to objection three the lesser is included in the greater wherefore a person who is bound by vow or oath to enter a lesser order may be lawfully induced to enter a greater one unless there be some special obstacle such as ill health or the hope of making greater progress in the lesser order on the other hand one who is bound by vow or oath to enter a greater order cannot be lawfully induced to enter a lesser order except for some special and evident motive and then with the superior's dispensation tenth article whether it is praiseworthy to enter religion without taking counsel of many and previously deliberating for a long time objection one it would not seem praiseworthy to enter religion without taking counsel of many and previously deliberating for a long time for it is written in first john four one believe not every spirit but try the spirits if they be of god now sometimes a man's purpose of entering religion is not of god since it often comes to naught through his leaving the religious life for it is written in acts five verses thirty eight and thirty nine if this counsel or this work be of god you cannot overthrow it therefore it would seem that one ought to make a searching inquiry before entering religion objection to further it is written in proverbs twenty five nine treat thy cause with thy friend now a man's cause would seem to be especially one that concerns a change in a state of life therefore seemingly one ought not to enter religion without discussing the matter with one's friends objection three further our lord in luke fourteen twenty eight in making a comparison with a man who has a mind to build a tower says that he doth first sit down and reckon the charges that are necessary whether he have wherewithal to finish it lest he become an object of mockery for that this man began to build and was not able to finish now the wherewithal to build the tower as augustine says in his letter two hundred and forty three written to latus is nothing less than that 
each one should renounce all his possessions. Yet it happens sometimes that many cannot do this, nor keep other religious observances. And in signification of this it is stated in First Kings 17.39 that David could not walk in Saul's armor, for he was not used to it. Therefore, it would seem that one ought not to enter religion without long deliberation beforehand and taking counsel of many. On the contrary, it is stated in Matthew 4.20 that upon our Lord's calling them, Peter and Andrew, immediately, leaving their nets, followed him. Here Chrysostom says in his homily 14 on the Gospel of Matthew, Such obedience as this does Christ require of us, that we delay not even for a moment. I answer that long deliberation and the advice of many are required in great matters of doubt, as the philosopher says in Ethics 3.3, while advice is unnecessary in matters that are certain and fixed. Now with regard to entering religion, three points may be considered. First, the entrance itself into religion, considered by itself. And thus it is certain that entrance into religion is a greater good, and to doubt about this is to disparage Christ who gave this counsel. Hence Augustine says, in his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, too, The East, that is Christ, calleth thee, and thou turnest to the West, namely mortal and fallible men. Secondly, the entrance into religion may be considered in relation to the strength of the person who intends to enter. And here again there is no room for doubt about the entrance to religion, since those who enter religion trust not to be able to stay by their own power, but by the assistance of the divine power, according to Isaiah 40.31. They that hope in the Lord shall renew their strength, they shall take wings as eagles, they shall run and not be weary, they shall walk and not faint. Yet if there be some special obstacle, such as bodily weakness, a burden of debts, or the like, in such cases a man must deliberate and take counsel with such as are likely to help and not hinder him. Hence it is written in Ecclesiasticus 37.12, Treat with a man without religion concerning holiness, with an unjust man concerning justice, meaning that one should not do so, wherefore the text goes on in Ecclesiasticus 37 verses 14 and 15, Give no heed to these in any matter of counsel, but be continually with a holy man. In these matters, however, one should not take long deliberation. Wherefore Jerome says, in his letter 53, Hasten, I pray thee, cut off rather than loosen the rope that holds the boat to the shore. Thirdly, we may consider the way of entering religion, and which order one ought to enter. And about such matters, also, one may take counsel of those who will not stand in one's way. 
Reply to Objection 1. The saying, Try the spirits if they be of God, applies to matters admitting of doubt whether the spirits be of God. Thus those who are already in religion may doubt whether he who offers himself to religion be led by the Spirit of God or be moved by hypocrisy. Wherefore they must try the postulant whether he be moved by the divine spirit. But for him who seeks to enter religion there can be no doubt but that the purpose of entering religion to which his heart has given birth is from the Spirit of God for it is his spirit that leads man into the land of uprightness, according to Psalm 142, verse 10. Nor does this prove that it is not of God that some turn back, since not all that is of God is incorruptible, else corruptible creatures would not be of God, as the Manichaeans hold, nor could some who have grace from God lose it, which is also heretical. But God's counsel, whereby he makes even things corruptible and changeable, is imperishable according to Isaiah 46.10. My counsel shall stand, and all my will shall be done. Hence, the purpose of entering religion needs not to be tried whether it be of God, because it requires no further demonstration as a gloss says on 1 Thessalonians 5.21. Prove all things. Reply to Objection 2. Even as the flesh lusteth against the spirit, according to Galatians 5.17, so too carnal friends often thwart our spiritual progress, according to Micah 7.6. A man's enemies are they, of his own household. Wherefore Cyril, expounding Luke 9.61, let me first take my leave of them that are at my house, says, by asking first to take his leave of them that were at his house, he shows he was somewhat of two minds, for to communicate with his neighbors and consult those who are unwilling to relish righteousness is an indication of weakness and turning back. Hence he hears our Lord say, No man putting his hand to the plough and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God, because he looks back who seeks delay in order to go home and confer with his kinsfolk. Reply to Objection 3. The building of the tower signifies the perfection of Christian life, and the renunciation of one's possessions is the wherewithal to build this tower. Now no one doubts or deliberates about wishing to have the wherewithal, or whether he is able to build the tower if he have the wherewithal, but what does come under deliberation is whether one has the wherewithal. Again, it need not be a matter of deliberation whether one ought to renounce all that one has, or whether by so doing one may be able to attain to perfection, whereas it is a matter of deliberation whether that which one is doing amounts to the renunciation of all that he has, since unless he does renounce, which is to have the wherewithal, he cannot, as the text goes on to state, be Christ's disciple, and this 
is to build the tower. The misgiving of those who hesitate as to whether they may be able to attain to perfection by entering religion is shown by many examples to be unreasonable. Hence Augustine says in Confessions 8.11, On that side whither I had set my face, and whither I trembled to go, there appeared to me the chaste dignity of continency, honestly alluring me to come and doubt not, and stretching forth to receive and embrace me, her holy hands full of multitudes of good examples. There were so many young men and maidens here, a multitude of youth and every age, grave widows and aged virgins, and she smiled at me with a persuasive mockery as though to say, Canst not thou what these youths and these maidens can? Or can they either in themselves, and not rather in the Lord their God? Why standest thou in thyself, and so standest not? Cast thyself upon him, fear not. He will not withdraw himself that thou shouldest fall. Cast thyself fearlessly upon him. He will receive and he will heal thee. The example quoted of David is not to the point because the arms of Saul, as a gloss on the passage observes, are the sacraments of the law as being burdensome, whereas religion is the sweet yoke of Christ, for as Gregory says in his commentary on Job 4.33, what burden does he lay on the shoulders of the mind, who commands us to shun all troublesome desires, who warns us to turn aside from the rough paths of this world? To those indeed who take this sweet yoke upon themselves, he promises the refreshment of the divine fruition and the eternal rest of their souls. To which may he who made this promise bring us, Jesus Christ our Lord, who is over all things, God blessed for ever. Amen. End of question 189. Read by Michael Shane Craig Lambert, L.C. End of Summa Theologica, Pars Secunda Secunde, Treatise on Gratuitous Graces and the States of Life. End of the second part of the Summa Theologica.